Ramsey. Uh, as you can see, Ramsey is a teddy bear. Uh, not my teddy bear. Uh, he's my son Noah's teddy bear. And Ramsey is an old teddy bear. Five and a half years old, in fact. I'm not quite sure what that equates to in teddy bear years, uh, but he is he's an old bear. And you'd know this if you met Ramsey. You see, Ramsey really smells. He's lost his shape. We've tried to patch him up, as you can see, uh, but it hasn't worked. It looks like he really just needs a, an appendix operation or something like that. I've offered to replace this bear. I've offered uh, to, to get Noah a new bear. I think this bear has served its purpose. It was never meant to be a permanent addition to our family. Uh, but I'm fighting a losing battle. You see, Ramsey accompanies Noah on long car journeys. He watches TV with Noah and he even sleeps in Noah's bed. But Noah is just not interested in this new bear that I'm offering him. I wonder if you know someone who is also similarly attached to something old. It might be an old mobile phone, a brick as people kind of call them. Uh, the charger doesn't act so much as a little boost every so often as a life support machine for this antique. Maybe it's an old item of clothing, worn out slippers, an old dressing gown, a dodgy shirt that your kids just want you to stop wearing, an old pair of tracksuit bottoms that have lost their shape and that everyone cringes when you wear them. And yet this owner won't hear of you telling them to get rid of this old thing. Old things are hard to let go of for some people. Old things are familiar to us. Uh, they bring us comfort. Uh, they provide security. They hold memories. Well, this morning, as we continue our series in Hebrews, we'll see that the writer to the Hebrews is quite familiar with such thinking. He was writing to new Jewish Christians who needed encouragement to persevere in their new faith in Christ and not to return to the old ways of Judaism. It could be that these new Jewish Christians had been taunted by their relatives uh, or their friends and neighbours about their new Christian faith. Maybe they'd been taunted for abandoning the old and visibly impressive ways of the Jewish faith, the sacrifices, the priests, the tabernacle in favor of this new man, Jesus of Nazareth. After all, this little group of Jesus' followers were very unimpressive. Well, in case they were tempted to go back to the old ways, the comfortable ways, the familiar ways of the Jewish faith, the writer to the Hebrews provides yet more warm pastoral wisdom to these new believers in the passage that we're going to read today. So let's read what the writer has to say in Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll read verses 18 to 29. If you've got a church Bible, that's on page 1211. Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged them no further word be spoken to them, because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, 
to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape him who refused, they ref, if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. In the book of Hebrews, the Christian life is likened to a race. And in recent weeks, the writer to the Hebrews has been strongly encouraging us from chapter 12 to keep in the race. We've been encouraged to throw off everything that hinders, to throw off the sin that entangles us, to run with perseverance, to endure hardship as discipline, to strengthen our arms and our knees, to level the paths for our feet, to make every effort to live at peace with everyone and to be holy. It's exhausting just reading that list of things to do, far less doing it. Now, if you've ever tried to lead a group of people, uh, whether at work or in a committee that you serve on, or on a sports team, or even at home just getting the kids in the car, you know that there's only so much exhorting you can do. There's only so much encouraging. You need more than this. You need to set out a vision of what it is that will be gained if the people do what you're encouraging them to do. And that is what the writer to the Hebrews is doing in this passage this morning. He's given his readers a vision of all that is theirs right now to help them to run the race that is the Christian life. In other words, he's trying to help them to keep living a life of faith. He's going to show them how the old way of life, the old covenant made at Sinai, has been done away with. It wasn't meant to last forever. It was just a temporary thing. And now it's been replaced by this new covenant, a new agreement between God and man, which is so much better than the old one. And this morning, as the writer to the Hebrews shows us a vision of all that is ours, if we're followers of Christ, he's going to hold out two things to us. And the first one is this. The writer holds out to us a privilege to embrace. Look down with me at verses 18 to 24 for a moment. And look with me and see how these verses are a huge statement about the privilege that is ours in Christ under the new covenant. In these verses, the writer contrasts uh, the terror of the old covenant given at Mount Sinai with the glory of the new covenant and all of its blessings. The terror of the old covenant is covered in verses 18 to 21, and the new covenant blessings are there down in verses 22 to 24. Let's start with verse 18 and just look at the language that the writer uses. The place was burning with fire. 
overshadowed with darkness and gloom and storm. These are some of the most destructive and frightening displays of nature's power, aren't they? Fire, storm, terrifying stuff. You probably know this, but on Wednesday, it's going to be the one-year anniversary of the Grenfell Tower, Tower disaster. It's amazing how quickly a year has gone in from that horrible event. If you remember uh, watching the pictures from the time, you'll remember how devastating that fire was. Well, that, without taking anything away from it, is like a small tea light compared to the image that we have here of Mount Sinai. Sinai was a, a terrifying experience. Hope you picked that up from Rossi's reading earlier in Exodus 19. Verse 19 tells us that the people could not bear what God was saying to them. It wasn't just the, the things they saw, the natural things. It was God's, what God was saying. They could not come close to this mountain. Not even a, a stray animal could come close. God was completely off limits. You see, God was teaching his people through these frightening sights of the forbidden mountain how utterly holy and set apart he is and how utterly sinful they are. They cannot dare approach this holy God. In fact, God specifically says in Exodus 19 verse 12, put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. Terrifying image of Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, you might remember, was the place that Israelites came to after they'd been delivered from Egypt, from Pharaoh's clutches. And it was at Mount Sinai that God made a covenant with these Israelites. It's sometimes called the Law of Moses. And its job was to show us our sin, to show us how far short we have fallen of God's standards and of how completely incapable of reaching God's standards we are on our own. And yet even for Moses, who, who, who takes the name of this law, who was the mediator of this covenant, the middleman, if you like, even for him, verse 21 tells us, it was a terrifying experience. He says that I am trembling with fear. It was all too much even for the mediator between God and the people. And yet this is what the people that the writer to the Hebrews was, um, the, the, the people who the Hebrews, uh, writer to the Hebrews was writing to uh, were tempted to go back to. These old covenant institutions, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the priests, all reminders of these old days when God could not be approached directly. Terrifying stuff. Why would you go back to this? Well, verse 22 marks a real turning point. Only three letters, but that word but is such a relief to come to in light of verses 18 to 21. Followers of Jesus have come not to a terrifying, unapproachable mountain place, no, verse 22 says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. I want you to notice, first of all, that it doesn't say that we're going there, although that is true. Uh, and we'll, we'll think more about that in chapter 13, verse 14, about this journey. No, the, the, the language here in our passage this morning is past tense. We have come to Mount Zion, verse 22 says. 
Now, the original Mount Zion was a, a fortress that was overthrown by Israel's greatest king, King David. It then became King David's capital and the heart of the wider city of Jerusalem. But the Mount Zion in today's passage isn't a physical mountain. We can tell that from verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched. What we've come to instead is an accessible, eternal city. We've come to the heavenlies. Now, this isn't a new idea in Hebrews. You might remember back in chapter 10, verse 19, the writer says that since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, that's the confidence that we have. And this is just another reminder of the spiritual privilege, the spiritual inheritance that every Christian possesses. It's quite hard to get our heads around this, that this is our current location now. But look at all the blessings that we have. Verse 22, we've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. However many people we can cram in here on a Sunday morning, there are also thousands upon thousands of angels who are rejoicing to hear Christ Jesus proclaimed. That is an extraordinary thought. On top of that, we've come to the church of the firstborn. Now, again, we've heard this language of firstborn before back in chapter 1, uh, which describes Jesus as God's firstborn son. Uh, but the word here in our passage this morning is plural. It's, it's, the, it's the title for Jesus' followers who are granted an inheritance, as if they too are firstborn sons like Jesus. And notice that these same people's names are written in heaven. That's the reality for all true believers right now so sure is their salvation but it doesn't stop there it gets even better look at verse 23 you have come to God the judge of all even though God is still the judge of all they've come to him we've come to him he's not far off this would have been impossible at Mount Sinai and as we come to God notice that we do so along with the spirits of the righteous made perfect in other words, the men and women of faith of Old Testament times, like the ones that we saw listed back in chapter 11, these people are now enjoying a perfection in the Lord Jesus Christ that was only made possible after his death on the cross. But even that's not all. Look at verse 24. It teaches us that the center and the crown and the source of all that we're given to enjoy is Jesus Christ himself. He's the high point. He's the summit of Mount Zion. He's the cause of the people's rejoicing. And the angels rejoicing. He is what we as followers rejoice in now. And what we're going to rejoice in for all eternity. When we sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. To receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. The song of Revelation. You see, Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. He's fully qualified. He's fully able. And he's always waiting to fulfill the promises to all of us who will come to him and come to God through him. He's the one described here as the one whose blood, uh, sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You might remember from the story of Cain and Abel that Abel's blood cried for revenge against his brother Cain. Here, Jesus' blood cries peace. Peace with God. 
Jesus' blood brings cleansing and forgiveness through his blood. The new covenant which he mediated through his death. You recall from the verses above that the the earthly mediator of the old covenant, uh, Moses, was too terrified to come before God. But Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, is himself both fully God and fully man, and therefore peace with God is possible for sinners like you and like me. Now here's a question though. Why is the writer to the Hebrews described our privilege in this way? Why is he using Mount Sinai to represent the old covenant which exposed our sin and Mount Zion to represent the new covenant which dealt with our sin? You see, he could have just said, you're not under the law anymore. You're followers of Christ. You don't have to fear God's wrath. That would have been much shorter and a much shorter sermon too. Quite simply, the answer is this. The mountain imagery highlights the incredible difference between the covenants in just the most extraordinary, vivid way. You see, under the old covenant, we've seen that there was a distance that separated worshippers from God. There were limits put around the mountain. But under the new covenant, followers of Christ have unrestricted access to God. There's no agonizing wait to see whether God will accept our friend request. This heavenly city is ours now, and so are all its blessings. If you have put your trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you're one of these people who's come to Mount Zion. You're one of the privileged sharers in a heavenly inheritance described in verses 22 and 24. You have this inheritance right now. You're not waiting for someone to die to get this inheritance. He's already died, and he's risen again, and this inheritance is yours right now. I want to ask you this morning, do you believe this? Have you fully embraced the privilege that you have as a follower of Jesus Christ? It's so easy to be distracted by the things that we can see, the visible things that distract us in this world. I see a tram going past just now, it's distracting me. It's easy to live by sight. But for those of us who live by faith, there are eternal, invisible realities for us to embrace right now. Let me speak to you if you're someone who is anxious about their salvation. Someone who worries about whether they're right before God. My brother and my sister in Christ, take these words to heart. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You've come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is reality for you. Don't doubt it. Reflect on these words. Embrace the privilege that is yours right this minute. Let me talk to you if you're feeling weary this morning. For the past few weeks we've been talking about running a lot. 
it's quite uh, physical, it's quite uh, exhausting just even thinking about all this running talk, isn't it? Maybe you're weary of running the Christian race this morning. Maybe you're wondering, with all the pressure that you face and all the challenges that are in your life, why do you keep bothering? Again, I'd ask you to reflect on these words. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to the mediator, Jesus, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is more real than all you're going through. It's more permanent than the things that you're going through right now. Stay in the race. Keep going. With the picture of the Brownleys last week, drape your arm over another believer if you have to. Keep going. The Christian race isn't about personal, personal bests. It's about perseverance. Stick in. Keep going. Why? These verses are the reason why. This is all yours. And guess what? The best is yet to come. There's a day coming when there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. This pressure that you're under, the struggles that you face, they will be gone one day. Stay in the race. Use the ordinary means of grace that God gives you to keep going. Pray to him. Praise his name. Gather with his people. Ponder his word as often as you can. And keep going. This is why the writer has shown us in this passage our privilege as followers of Christ. So that we'll keep enduring the race that is the Christian life. I'd love to stop there, actually. Reminding us of what it is that we embrace. The privileges that we embrace as followers of Christ and residents of Mount Zion. But the passage doesn't quite end there. You see, in verses 25 to 29, the writer also gives us something else. As well as giving us a privilege to embrace, he gives us a warning to heed. And the warning is there in verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven. I wonder if you understand the warning. When God has given us his word, the one thing that we cannot do is refuse to respond to it. When he has told us about what he's done in the Lord Jesus Christ and the privilege that has been opened up to us to be able to come into his presence, the one thing that we cannot do is refuse to respond to his word. This warning is not unlike the warning that Moses gave to the Israelites when he died. Moses said to the Israelites, Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Moses was God's messenger who warned the people on earth. But now, in Jesus, God has spoken to us personally from heaven. And he is still speaking to us personally through the gospel of his son. And notice from verse 5 that because we live after the death and the resurrection of Christ, 
our responsibility to respond to the gospel is actually increased by our hearing of the gospel. Verse 25 said that if the Israelites didn't escape when Moses warned them, we've even less chance of escape if we turn away from the gospel when, which came to us from God in heaven through his son. At Sinai, God's voice shook the earth. But look at verse 26. It teaches that there's a time coming when he will not only shake the earth, but he will shake the heavens too. Jesus himself taught us as much. He said in the Gospel of Mark, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. There's a time coming when this temporary stuff of this world, the the created things, as it's called in verse 27, there's a time when these things will disappear and only the eternal things, the things that cannot be shaken, like God's word, will remain. Now, like all good warnings, verses 25 to 27 don't just tell us what we're not to do i.e. refuse God's word they tell us what we should do look at verses 28 to 29 with me therefore since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire you see as those of us who have come to join thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, as those who have been granted exclusive access into God's presence, our responsibility is to offer ourselves to God in daily obedience. Notice the role of thankfulness. That's the motive for heeding this warning and for living wholeheartedly for God. We won't refuse our speaking God if we're thankful people. Notice too that that we should offer this worship Um, or service, depending on what translation you've got, uh, we're to offer it acceptably with reverence and with awe. Now, this implies that we can worship God or serve God in a way that is unacceptable, in a way that is not filled with reverence and awe. It's possible to come to God's presence presumptively or casually. And the problem with that is our God, the God who has poured out his grace in our lives and lets us come into his presence and who we can call Father is a God who does not compromise when it comes to his holiness. He is a consuming fire. This fire will one day, uh, when when Jesus returns, uh, work destruction. But it is now in this day of his grace to be trusted, to work in us, to burn up all the dross in our lives and to cause our hearts to flame with devotion for him. And so the warning comes full circle. It begins in verse 25 by saying there's no escape from God if you refuse his word. And it ends with this warning that there'll be no escape on the final day from this God because he's a consuming fire. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been You have run the Christian race for a while, but instead of keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, uh, you've stopped running with your eyes fixed on Jesus, and instead you're running hard and fast in the wrong direction. You're chasing something else in this world, if you're being quite honest. Your eyes are not fixed on Christ. Uh, It's fixed on something else, not necessarily something sinful, uh, but something that you are worshipping instead of Christ. Or maybe it is sinful, and it's replaced Christ in your life. 
My friend, you are like the prodigal son in chapter 15 of Luke's gospel who's cashed in his inheritance and things have got so bad that he ended up eating out of a, a pig's trough. In light of this morning's passage, I want to urge you to heed this warning. I want you to see that if you turn away from God and refuse his word, there is no escape from it. Do you understand that God is not to be messed with? He is a consuming fire. It's there in the passage. Will you heed the warning of these verses? Confess your sin. Turn back to God and embrace the privileges that you have as a follower of Christ again. Maybe you're here this morning and that doesn't really describe your situation. Maybe life is actually going quite well. Things are progressing nicely for you. You get out to church most weeks. You faithfully serve. You're in good standing with everyone as far as you can make out. Quite honestly, you're content. Well, we've been told repeatedly that we're in a race. And if you're a runner, it's good to have a health checkup from time to time. Let me ask you this morning, if things are going well for you, is it because you're content in the privileges of all that you possess in verses 24, uh, 22 to 24? Or is it really because the mortgage is almost paid off or paid off? Is it because the pension's ticking along quite nicely? Is it because retirement is on the horizon? The fridge is always nicely stocked. The kids are doing all right, considering. And your spouse isn't getting away of all your hobbies and your me time. I guess what I'm asking is, are you content because you've been steadily lured in by the things of verse 27, known as created things, temporary things of this life? Or are you running the race with a clear vision of what your privileges are in the Lord Jesus? Are you running or are you coasting? Verse 27 tells us that all these things that we are so tempted to pursue they will be removed. They're not worth chasing. They'll get burned up. They're shakeable. And so if God is this consuming fire that we read that he is, it means that every minute, every penny, every possession, every experience, every room in our house, all that we are and all that we have should be used in thankful service to God in a way that is acceptable to him. In other words, with reverence and with awe. And we are to get back in the race and chase after God hard. That will not pass away. That is unshakable. We get ready for the day when God shakes the earth and the heavens by heeding this warning. Let's not refuse our speaking God today. Let's put our confidence in the fleeting uh, not, let's not put our confidence in the fleeting vain things of this life, but in the things of God that cannot be shaken. Let me speak to you for a moment if you are new to church. Uh, maybe you've been coming to our services for a little while, maybe you've not. Are you starting to build up a picture of what this God is like who Christians believe in and obey? 
Are you starting to see that he's not simply a crux for weak, needy people who need some kind of imaginary friend to get them through the day? Has it dawned on you yet that the God Christians worship is the God of all the universe? And yet, who has made you a unique individual? And that who longs to have a personal relationship with you? Has it occurred to you that, you that we as Christians don't just come here every Sunday because we've got nothing better to do, but it's that because Jesus Christ's blood has been shed for us and paid for our sins so that we can come into the very presence of the living God joyfully, willingly, unhindered, every day of the week, but corporately here as we gather on Sunday? And has the penny dropped yet that the God who extends the offer of forgiveness of your sins is also a consuming fire? Meaning that if you refuse to hear him today, a day of destruction is coming when you will face the full wrath and weight of God's judgment. Why would you do that? Why would you refuse God's words? Today you can experience the unshakable, eternal privilege of being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can do it today. Say sorry to God for rejecting him, for all the wrong things that you've said and done and thought. Come to him with thankfulness for uh, the, the thankfulness that we've been speaking about already in verse 28. Thankfulness for what he has accomplished for you on the cross, the forgiveness of sins. And ask God to help you serve him acceptably with reverence and awe. You can do that today. The person you came with will, will certainly be delighted to help you and we'll have people down the front here that can pray with you after the service. Imagine a church full of people running with perseverance together, fixing their eyes on Jesus, fully embracing the privilege that is theirs in being able to come to God because of Jesus' shed blood for them. Imagine a church family where everyone was so conscious of their unrestricted access to God. Imagine if each one of us used this unrestricted access every day in prayer, in reading the Bible for ourselves or with our family, or with a colleague or a neighbor who's expressed an interest in Christianity, with an older Christian. Imagine when we gathered if our highest priority was whether we were worshiping God acceptably rather than whether our worship was acceptable to us. The list could go on. There are countless benefits to the church and countless opportunities to impact the community around us when we keep focused on the privilege that we possess right now. This unrestricted access to God through Christ. And when we heed the warning not to refuse him who speaks. Let's pray.